Since Atlanta, she had looked out the dining car window with a delight almost physical. Over her breakfast coffee, she watched the last of Georgia's hills recede and the red earth appear. And with it, ten roofed houses set in the middle of swept yards. And in the yards, the inevitable verbena grew, surrounded by whitewashed tires. She grinned when she saw her first TV antenna atop an unpainted Negro house. As they multiplied, her joy rose. Jean Louise Finch always made this journey by air, but she decided to go by train from New York to Macomb Junction on her fifth annual trip home. For one thing, she had the life scared out of her the last time she was on a plane. The pilot elected to fly through a tornado. For another thing, flying home meant her father rising at three in the morning, driving a hundred miles to meet her in Mobile, and doing a full day's work afterwards. He was 72 now, and this was no longer fair. She was glad she had decided to go by train. Trains had changed since her childhood, and the novelty of the experience amused her. A fat genie of a porter materialized when she pressed a button on a wall. At her bidding, a stainless steel wash basin popped out of another wall, and there was a john one could prop one's feet on. She resolved not to be intimidated by several messages stenciled around her compartment, a roomette, they called it. But when she went to bed the night before, she succeeded in folding herself up into the wall because she had ignored an injunction to pull this lever down over brackets, a situation remedied by the porter, to her embarrassment, as her habit was to sleep only in pajama tops. Luckily, he happened to be patrolling the corridor when the trap snapped shut with her in it. I'll get you out, miss, he called in answer to her poundings from within. No, please, she said. Just tell me how to get out. I can do it with my back turned, he said, and did. When she awoke that morning, the train was switching and chugging in the Atlanta yards. But in obedience to another sign in her compartment, she stayed in bed until College Park flashed by. When she dressed, she put on her make clothes gray slacks, a black sleeveless blouse, white socks, and loafers. Although it was four hours away, she could hear her aunt's sniff of disapproval. When she was starting on her fourth cup of coffee, the Crescent Limited honked like a giant goose at its northbound mate and rumbled across the Chattahoochee into Alabama. The Chattahoochee is wide, flat, and muddy. It was low today, a yellow sandbar had reduced its flow to a trickle. Perhaps it sings in the wintertime, she thought. I do not remember a line of that poem. Piping down the valleys wild? No. Did he write to a waterfowl, or was it a waterfall? She sternly repressed a tendency to boisterousness when she reflected that Sidney Lanier must have been somewhat like her long-departed cousin, Joshua Singleton St. Clair, whose private literary preserves stretched from the Black Belt to Bayou Labattri. Jean Louise's aunt often held up Cousin Joshua to her as a family example not lightly to be discountenanced. He was a splendid figure of a man. He was a poet. He was cut off in his prime. And Jean Louise would do well to remember that he was a credit to the family. His pictures did the family well. Cousin Joshua looked like a ratty Algernon Swinburne. Jean Louise smiled to herself when she remembered her father telling her the rest of it. 
Cousin Joshua was cut off, all right, not by the hand of God, but by Caesar's hosts. When at the university, Cousin Joshua studied too hard and thought too much. In fact, he read himself straight out of the 19th century. He affected an Inverness cape and wore jackboots he had a blacksmith make up from his own design. Cousin Joshua was frustrated by the authorities when he fired upon the president of the university, who in his opinion was little more than a sewage disposal expert. This was no doubt true, but an idle excuse for assault with a deadly weapon. After much passing around of money, Cousin Joshua was moved across the tracks and placed in state accommodations for the irresponsible, where he remained for the rest of his days. They said he was reasonable in every respect until someone mentioned that president's name. Then his face would become distorted. He would assume a whooping crane attitude and hold it for eight hours or more, and nothing or nobody could make him lower his leg until he forgot about that man.' 